BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Yeah, it is Infrastructure Week. Uh, how's that working out? <laughs> Whoa, blew up yesterday, that's for sure. What do you say, folks? Can you believe it? It's a Thursday, May 23rd. Thursday, May 23rd, 2019, the Bill Press Show. Here we go, next couple of hours. We'll be romping through the news of the day with... Uh, the help of some great guests today, uh, two leading members of the Democratic, two members of the Democratic leadership in the House, Congressman John Yarmuth, chair of the Budget Committee, and Congressman Mark Pocan, who is co-chair of the uh, Progressive Caucus. John Yarmuth from Kentucky, of course, Mark, Mark Pocan from Wisconsin, and then the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, here again as well. So all of that coming up on a day we've never seen a day like this, I don't think, ever in Washington, uh, where Donald Trump threw a little temper tantrum, uh, stormed out into the Rose Garden, stalked out of a meeting with Nancy Pelosi, just like he stalked out of a meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, this is the old real estate tycoon trying to up to, up to his old tricks, stormed into the Rose Garden for a very much like a campaign rally and lit into members of the media, into Nancy Pelosi, into Chuck Schumer, into uh, into uh, Congress in general. And it looks like the whole thing ha fall, fell apart and there's no way to put Humpty Dumpty back together. That's what we'll be talking about for the next couple of hours with your help and your comments, as always. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Get ready to go, but first, this is the Full Court Press. Already just a couple of other stories making news. There is a new king of late night, Bill. Really? Yes, indeed. The CBS's Late Show with Stephen Colbert won in a key demographic over NBC's Tonight Show. Wow. This is for the uh, number one rating in late night among adults, 18 to 49. It's for the 2018-2019 season, which ends into yesterday, actually. This marks the show's first 
season-long demographic win over the Tonight Show in 20 years. Wow. I was going to say, I know the Tonight Show has been number one for the a Tonight long Show's time. The Tonight Show has been, yeah, number one yeah. for yeah. literally for, for 20 years. Huh. It's the first wow. time that The Late Show has held this title since 1994, 1995, the early years of when David Letterman was there. So whatever Stephen Colbert is doing is clearly working. Uh, people um, uh, like him, and uh, he's, he's doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Or whatever the other guys are doing is not working. Also yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that could also be the case. Hey, what can't Amazon do? It appears as though they can do just about anything, including reading your emotions. No, really. They are developing a new voice-activated wearable device that can recognize human emotions. Now, how does this work? They're working with a team that helped them design the uh, Echo, the Alexa voice, yeah. of course. Uh, and it works with a smartphone app. It has a microphone. It has the microphone on your your phone. Uh, paired with software that can discern the wearer's emotional state from the sound of his or her voice. Mm. And then the phone says, it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, <baby>. right. <laughs> yeah, no, just relax. Calm down. Hey, yeah, calm hey down. relax. Right. Just, just, hey, just, yeah. You should maybe sit just down, sit for, down a for a while. Just sit down for a while. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. My phone starts talking back to me like that. Mm-mm. Yeah, seriously. Uh, some sad news overnight. Uh-oh. We go to Missouri where a huge tornado, a monster tornado, tore through Jefferson City, causing, quote, catastrophic damage and a, quote, mass casualty event. There were twisters all around the state, uh, but with this one particular violent tornado in Jefferson City that hit around midnight last night uh, it is very, very bad. Three people have already been confirmed killed. And you can imagine that there will be more people uh, confirmed uh, as the sun comes up in Missouri. Uh, that her, uh, tornado activity uh, across the, the plains there, yeah. Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, um, Kansas, horrific. This is the Bill Press Show. Baby Donnie throws a temper tantrum in the Rose Garden. Hey, what do you say, folks? Here we go. The Bill Press Show. Are you ready? Let's go on a Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. Hello, hello, hello. Wow, what a day yesterday. And what a lot to talk about today here on the Bill Press Show. As we join you. Everywhere you are in this great country of ours, everywhere you are around the globe, can't escape. We're there with you online, on the radio and on television, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember to sign up for that podcast and follow us on Twitter at BP Show so you can follow us into the new phase, the new look of The Bill Press Show, the new sound of The Bill Press Show. And the podcast starting first week of June. We're there with you on the radio as well, uh, statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks. And hello, WCPT. Hello, Chicago. The new mayor, Lori Lightfoot. You're all doing good out there, and it's good to see you today. And on television, how about it? Everywhere in this great land of ours, you have Free Speech TV, and we're there with you on Free Speech TV, the nation's only 24-7 progressive cable channel. So thanks so much for being part of the program. What a great lineup of guests we have today, starting with all of you. 
who know as much about the news and what you have to say is as as worth as as important as any of our guests in studio have to say. But joining us in studio, uh, three very good friends and three very important people in the political system here today. Uh, the chair of the Senate of um, of the House, chair of the House Budget Committee, uh, John Yarmouth from Kentucky will be here, as well as the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House, Congressman Mark Bocan from Wisconsin. And then looking forward to the uh, first debates in the 2020 presidential primary, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, will be here to join us uh, in our third half hour together, um, or last, very last part of the show. So lots going on. We want to hear from you again. Your comments on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. Yes, indeed. I don't do cover-ups, said Donald Trump. Oh, yeah? Oh, really? Donald Trump has done more cover-ups, massive cover-ups, worse than Nixon cover-ups ever since he's been in the White House. In fact, he started before, but let's just uh, hold him accountable for those cover-ups since he's been president. Uh, and uh, But that's what he said yesterday from the Rose Garden. And you've got to ask, I mean, he didn't take any questions, but you've got to ask, well, uh, what about not letting Don McGahn testify most recently? Yeah. Hey, what about that memo you wrote on Air Force One uh, about the Trump Tower meeting, which was a total, total lie, where you said it was all about adoption and really it was about getting dirt on Hillary? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on with the cover-ups of, uh, 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 of, of, Don, of Donald Trump. Um, what about uh, your tax returns? Where are they, Mr. President? What about the financial records? I, I mean, what what about all the... Um, documents, yeah, you did release a lot, but that you refused to release uh, to to, uh, to Robert Mueller. And what about not even sitting down for an interview with Robert Mueller, refusing to do so? Cover up, cover up, cover up. And then what about refusing to uh, provide any witnesses, any documents, any financial records, any cooperation at all with the uh, House, 20 different House investigations going on, ordering your people not to comply and not to provide documents the House Democrats have requested, the chairs of the various committees. It is all a giant cover-up, and Donald Trump knows it. But that came from in the Rose Garden after the big meeting. Again, we've never seen a, a, a day like this uh, in the White House. So as we talked yesterday and, and asked several guests on our show about, how was it going to be possible that they were going to have a meeting on infrastructure at the White House with so much going on yesterday. <laughs> well, it turns out Donald Trump really had no intention of holding a meeting. Uh, it looks that way uh, down at the White House on infrastructure. Uh, first of all, and this is in the setting of a couple of months earlier, whenever it was, that Speaker Pelosi, Leader uh, Schumer, and um, the president sat down to talk infrastructure, and they agreed not on a trillion dollars, but on two trillion. So this was a meeting where Donald Trump was going to come back and say, "Okay, now here's where the, here's uh, where the money's going to come from, and then let's start talking about priorities, how this money's going to be spent." There was no intention of getting of having that kind of a meeting yesterday. It was pretty clear because ahead of time, two things happened. Uh, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and others said, 
Uh, they couldn't come up with $2 trillion. They're certainly not, not willing to roll back some of the tax cuts. So it's going to have to be a lot, lot less. They had already put that word out. Then the day before the meeting, yesterday was Wednesday, so Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi saying, and to Chuck Schumer saying, well, you know, uh, we can't do infrastructure, and I will not do infrastructure unless first you pass the new NAFTA bill. So basically holding them hostage. You pass the USMCA, and then we can talk infrastructure. Again, indicating ahead of time, uh, didn't, didn't plan to have a serious meeting. And then uh, Nancy Pelosi had her meeting with the caucus yesterday. Uh, interestingly enough, the Democratic caucus, where she told them again, don't rush into impeachment. Let's take it slow. Let's let the hearings work out. We're making some progress. She leaves that meeting, and afterwards she did say, the president is engaged in a cover-up, but still, take it slow. Don't rush into impeachment. She goes down to the White House. The president walks into the cabinet room where they're already assembled, doesn't even sit down, starts railing away against Pelosi, against Schumer, and then storms out of the meeting and storms into the Rose Garden. If you ask me, all set up ahead of time because out in the Rose Garden, was the podium was already set up and reporters had already been assembled. Again, I think the whole thing was planned out ahead of time. Uh, Nancy Pelosi yesterday uh, told afterwards how it all came down in the cabinet room. He came into the room and said that I said that he was engaged in a cover-up and he couldn't possibly couldn't possibly engage in a conversation on infrastructure as long as as long as we are investigating him. And after uh, that meeting, uh, the, uh, the speaker went over to the Center for American Progress. I had a big ideas for him yesterday. Uh, and she said, uh, look, um, he is engaged and repeated about the cover up and said this could be an, the impeachable offense we're looking for. In plain sight, in the public domain, this president is obstructing justice and he's engaged in a cover up. And that could be an impeachable offense. Uh, and what does she do about it? Well, she's fighting back at the same time uh, as a good Catholic. He just took a pass. And it just makes me wonder why, why he did that. In any event, I pray for the president of the United States. And I pray for the United States of America. Then, as we said, the president went out into the Rose Garden. Now, note, in the Rose Garden, there's already a podium set up. Microphones already said, reporters already assembled. And on the podium, seen the picture, there's a big sign on the side of it. No collusion. No obstruction. I mean, like this is a campaign rally. Uh, I, I just I can't believe. I, I, yes, I can. I mean, Donald Trump has no respect for the White House, no respect for the Oval Office, no respect for the East Room of the White House, no respect for the Rose Garden. He's turned it all into a political playground. But I'm, I must tell you, we've seen <coughs> a lot of presidents. I mean, I've been covering the White House since Ronald Reagan was president. No president, Republican or Democrat, has ever turned the Rose Garden into a campaign rally. And that's exactly what Donald Trump yesterday did. It did. It's disgusting having this no collusion, no obstruction on the, pres the podium that has a presidential seal on it. It's not the place for naked partisan politics.
you know, Donald Trump doesn't care. Again, he claimed, we, what do you mean, cover up? We're the most transparent ever. I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. Uh, we have given on a witch hunt, on a hoax, the whole thing with Russia was a hoax as it relates to the Trump administration and myself. Uh, broken record, how many times has he called it a hoax, a witch hunt, the whole thing? I mean, yeah, most transparent ever. Where are your tax returns, dude? Uh, and again, another takedown, uh, another uh, his takedown of the Mueller report. This whole thing was a takedown attempt at the President of the United States. And honestly, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves <laughs> for the way you reported so dishonestly. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the model report only uh, identified 10 attempts on the part of Donald Trump to obstruct justice. Shame on the media for reporting that. Oh, yeah. Uh, how dare they report that? Uh, just jumping down, the president insists, I did nothing wrong. I don't do cover-ups. <laughs> you people know that probably better than anybody. No, we don't know that better than anybody. By the way, again, think of the cover-ups. Start with the tax return. Start with that covering up the purpose of the meeting. On Trump Tower. Start with not letting Don again testify. Uh, telling Bill Barr not to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. It's cover up, cover up, cover up uh, all the time. Uh, and what happened as a result of that, of course, is there are more, even more. By the way, CNN has, a, uh, I think, a pretty good headline on this today saying that what happened yesterday with this blow up um, between Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and his really insulting them uh, publicly, uh, walking out on them, treating them like Kim Jong-un. Um, the CNN headline on it is today, point of no return. I think it could very well be the point of no return in the, in the sense of getting anything done this year or next year. Not going to happen. Not, I, didn't, I didn't see how they come back together after this. Because Donald Trump said yesterday again, okay, I'm willing to work with you, but first, right? When they get everything done, I'm all set to... Oh, yeah. Let's get infrastructure. Oh, yeah. Let's get drug prices down. In the meantime, we're doing tremendous work without them. Yeah. So he says, basically, you end all the hearings. You hold no hearings you end these hearings and you hold no more hearings and then we can then we can work together. He actually said you cannot investigate and legislate at the same time. Oh no. Again, don't we remember um what was it 50 some times they voted to repeal Obamacare? Do we remember um 15 different hearings I think on Hillary's emails? and probably even more than that on Benghazi and can't legislate and investigate at the same time. That rule never applied for Republicans. The fact is Donald Trump has to face the consequences. The American people wanted Democrats in charge of the House. They gave him 40 extra seats, and there they are. But the net, or the immediate result of this yesterday was there were more and more Democratic voices in the House that spoke up including one of them in that caucus hearing yesterday, in that caucus meeting yesterday, but more and more Democratic uh, uh, um, members of the House, including some in the leadership, who say we have no choice now 
but to start an impeachment inquiry. Richard Neal, powerful chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. I voted last year to begin proceedings because I think there's ample evidence that we should be having this debate in Congress and before the American people. I mean, over 30 of the president's close associates have already been indicted by the Mueller report. His campaign chairman is in prison. Don't tell me there's not enough to debate here. Yep, got enough information to get going, at least have an inquiry, says Richard Neal. Even Bernie Sanders yesterday, Beto O'Rourke member came out and said we got to start impeachment hearings the other night. Bernie Sanders is not there yet, but he said we're getting close. It is the job of the administration to attend the hearings that the Congress is calling. If he doesn't understand that, it may well be a time for uh, an impeachment inquiry uh, to begin. Yes, and uh, one more. Oh, Maxine Waters, right? Maxine says, hey, I've been there. And she is the one person who did speak as part of the leadership chair of the Intelligence and Financial Services Committee. Uh, uh, she, she did speak yesterday in support of impeachment, and she told reporters afterwards, I've been there from day one. I'm for impeachment. I've always been for impeachment. I've never backed up. I've never changed my mind. I think he should be impeached. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he should be impeached. Um, so I mentioned that the Center for American Progress, this, I found this very interesting, Center for American Progress meeting yesterday, the Ideas Forum, uh, and I was down there for part of it uh, and was, able, was there when uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, who's chair of the House Intelligence Committee, um, spoke, was interviewed by Ari Melber from, uh, from MSNBC, uh, made a couple of interesting points. First of all, he said for himself, that he is not there yet on impeachment, but that he could get to the point where he would support an impeachment inquiry even though you knew it would not succeed because there'll never be the votes to convict in the United States Senate. And he said that's the um, dilemma, if you will, uh, and the split among Democrats in the House so far. Uh, There are some who say, look, um, we got to go forward because if we don't, even though we know it could fail and will fail, we got to go forward because if we don't, we are in effect endorsing Donald Trump's criminal activity. And then the other side says, we know it's going to fail. We know the Republicans will never vote for this in the Senate, so therefore we should not waste our time and resources in with uh, with obsession with uh, his focus on impeachment. Again, having said that, he said he could get to the point uh, where um, the, that that he could support going going forward, even though he knows it would fail. And uh, and he said, here's what could be the trigger: Are we at a constitutional in a constitutional crisis now? Not yet, said Adam Schiff yesterday. But he said, if the president were to def- because now where the president's refused to cooperate with Congress, they've gone to the courts. If the courts rule in favor of the House committees and the president defies the courts, refuses to comply with the courts, that, said Adam Schiff, would would put us into a constitutional crisis where we have no choice but to impeach because then you've got the president who is not only defying the legislative branch but the judicial branch of the United States government powers that he simply does not have. Um, Interesting point on the part of Adam Schiff. And on that point, by the way, uh, yesterday, remember we told you a couple of days ago, a federal judge here in Washington, D.C., Amit Mehta, a federal judge said, 
that the president definitely, um, that one of the, the accounting firm that the president uses, one of them, Mazars USA, has to turn over the financial returns that had been requested by Chairman Cummings of the House Oversight Committee. Big victory for the House Democrats, big blow to Donald Trump. Donald Trump says his attorneys say they're going to appeal that ruling. That was two days ago. Yesterday, another judge, another federal judge up in New York State, um, Judge Edgardo Ramos, said that the administration is wrong in defying a subpoena issued by Maxine Waters Committee, the Financial Services Committee, to get the financial records of the Trump empire from the Trump businesses, uh, to get those records from Deutsche Bank and from Capital One. The administration had said, we're not going to comply with that subpoena. Again, a federal judge yesterday said, no, you have to. Uh, the House has total authority to ask for those records. It's totally within their business, within their powers. The administration has to comply. The Trump White House has not yet said they'll appeal that verdict, but you know they will. But the point is, two times in a row, two times in a week, a federal judge has said House Democrats are right, Donald Trump is wrong. Uh, again, building toward a possible constitutional crisis, but also shows uh, you, you have to admit that to that extent, Nancy Pelosi's strategy of holding the hearings, letting it that process work out is getting some results, at least it has in two cases. We're going to talk a lot more about that with and want your comments on what's going on, Donald Trump's big uh, temper tantrum yesterday. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, and we'll be talking about that, of course, with Congressman John Yarmuth and Congressman Mark Pocan uh, coming up. A couple of other things I wanted to mention, by the way, um, one of the big uh, complaints that Donald Trump has about um, the Mueller investigation is it cost $40 million. Yeah. My God, how could we spend that money on something that's just such a you know, hoax as, a, as, the, as the Mueller report and the Mueller special counsel investigation? Undertaken, by the way, we keep reminding ourselves, we have to keep reminding him by Donald Trump's Justice Department. Well, Huffington Post put that in context yesterday. HuffPost reported that Donald Trump's golf outings so far as president have cost $102 million. Uh, most, of the time, most of that, of course, because, you know, he flies to Mar-a-Lago to play golf or he goes out to Sterling, or, uh, his own golf club here in Sterling, Virginia. And he doesn't go alone. And he doesn't go alone. But anyhow, 102, he's played golf more than twice as much as Obama ever did. Uh, and if the Mueller investigation costs $40 million, Donald Trump, two and a half times that for his golf outings. So uh, don't complain about don't complain about Mueller, Mr. President. We're spending, we, that's the taxpayer, this is... Taxpayer dollars we're spending here, $102 million. That's you and me paying for those golf fees and those golf outings. Um, interesting, related, and we're going to talk to Tom Perez about this too. Interesting uh, numbers came out yesterday related to potential turnout in 2020. And I think this is very interesting. This was a, uh, Professor Michael McDonald down at the University of Florida reported on uh, uh, Mike Allen in Axios. 
He predicted by his study of what happened in 2018 that we could see the highest turnout in 2020 in the last century. Up to, he's predict, projecting 67% voter turnout, which would be the highest since 1916, which is, wow. I mean, that would be tremendous. Um, and mostly, and why? Why? Well, first of all, why? Because he says there's so much enthusiasm, uh, so much excitement, particularly on the left, and the fact that there are 24 Democratic candidates means it's a much more energetic, a much more activist, a much more exciting primary, more people getting involved, more people are going to turn out to vote um, in November uh, 2020. And, of course, the other factor is uh, Donald Trump generating so much, um, if not hate, so much disgust around the country that people just want to get rid of him. Uh, and what's, what's most significant about this, I think, is that most of that the additional turnout is not coming from Donald Trump's votes, older white people. They vote anyway, always have, always do, and they're dying off. But the new people getting involved are younger, uh, more to the left, more progressive, and more people of color. So that's where the new voters are coming, and it looks like it could be huge. By the way, in 2018, 50% of eligible Americans did vote, which, which was a record for turnout in the midterm elections. Um, so we could see now a record this uh, University of Florida is projecting in 2020 uh, in the general election. Um, and uh, I guess finally, we have to say, oh, pity, pity, Michael Avenatti. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Michael, federal prosecutors, federal prosecutors in New York yesterday charging Michael Avenatti with stealing $300,000 from his client, Stormy it's Daniels. It's so bad. What a sleazeball, you know? God. And here, the idea that he was going to run for, he was thinking of running for president at one time. There's a there's been some great reporting on uh, sort of how he essentially created a version of a Ponzi scheme with his clients, right? Like he had all these money problems, so he'd get a big bump of money, yeah, and, and then he would cover here, those problems here, and yeah, then, yeah. And then he it would was... get a payout for certain clients, and instead of giving them the payout, he would use it for himself, and then he would string them along for sometimes years. I mean, he's a yeah. bad guy. Yeah, I mean, look. Everybody's innocent until proven guilty, but he's... Nah, <laughs> are they, though? <laughs> well, there are always exceptions to every rule. It looks like Michael Avenatti uh, could very well be the exception to that rule. Uh, at any rate, yes, indeed, it all blew up yesterday. Can we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Do we even want to? Congressman John Yarmouth from Kentucky joins us next, chair of the House Budget Committee. Honored to have him in the studio. Look forward to seeing him and uh, look forward to hearing from all of you. Your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, at BP Show. A quick break, and we'll be right back with the good congressman from Kentucky. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Thursday, May 23rd. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us. And being part of the Bill Press Show here as we come to you live from Washington, D.C. 
and brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, the one and only Leo Girard, United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union with about 1.2 million now active and retired members. Check out their website at usw.org. Join me uh, in welcoming to the studio. It's a great honor to have him here, the chair of the House Budget Committee, but we knew him Long before, <laughs> Long he, before he got to such a uh, such a, a powerful position, uh, Congressman John Yarmouth representing the third congressional district of Kentucky. Congressman, good to see you. Good, good to see you, Bill. Yeah, these yeah. are uh, busy days, huh? Busy days. Um, you know, my my is that uh, if you want to know how much angst there is in Washington these days, happy hour starts at eleven a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you might as well have happy hour because <laughs> yeah. nothing else is going on, right? Well, that, what was well, your... actually a lot's going on. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, a right. lot's going on, and I think one of the problems we're having as Democrats is we're doing an awful lot in the House and passing a lot of really important legislation, but you know nobody's paying much attention to it. What is your take on the whole circus yesterday with the so-called infrastructure meeting and the president storming out of it and then throwing this temper tantrum in the Rose Garden? Well, my take on it is that um, that I, I agree with Dana Milbank's column this morning that he is in mental decline and it's showing. He's becoming uh, totally unhinged, and that's that's very sad. I think Speaker Pelosi kind of indicated that when she said she was praying for him. Uh, you know, I I've had a couple conversations and praying for the United praying States. Praying for the United States, exactly. Uh, I've had a couple conversations with uh, a woman named Bandy Lee, who's a psychiatrist from Yale, who edited the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald oh, Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just a few weeks ago, I talked with her, and she said she believes that he is in the early stages of dementia and is on a pretty steep decline. Uh, that's pretty frightening. And, and, you know, she's a very, very uh, well-recognized uh, psychiatrist. She edited this book with 26 other prominent healthcare professionals from around the country. So she knows what she's talking about, and that's that's something that uh, should alarm everyone. Oh no, that book is a very powerful book. Mm-hmm. I read the whole book, yeah. and we've had uh, uh, I forget the one one of the authors uh, uh, contributors from Chicago has been mm-hmm. in the studio here uh, twice, and these are these are professionals, highly respected professionals, mm-hmm. who really lay it out there and say it's dangerous, particularly have somebody like that with his fingers so close. To the nuclear button. Well, exactly. And and just uh, so that any of the people in the audience don't misunderstand it, these are professionals who admit they've never treated right. Donald Trump, so they're not making a diagnosis. But in their professional careers, they recognize patterns of behavior which they recognize as being dangerous, and they have a professional responsibility to alert those who are threatened, in this case, the American people. Right. Um, back to uh, what happened yesterday. Uh, so Donald Trump said he could never deal with Democrats until they just stop holding any hearings. And so, uh, first of all, I mean, that's like Congress telling Congress, don't do your job. Right? Exactly right. And, and that I'm not going to do mine. <laughs> so he said, yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, no, it's, it's totally absurd. And I, you know, at least the press accounts were that, that White House officials tried to talk him out of doing what he did. Uh, it was carefully contrived. Uh, he had pre-printed uh, signs for the event mm-hmm. in the Rose Garden and notes that he had written out. So it was a totally staged uh, uh, rant, and it, it, it's it's alarming. Again, uh, this is but what's been so frustrating. You know, everybody asked me, "Well, are we going to get a budget deal? Are we going to get a budget deal?" And I said, 
who knows? There is no problem, really, in getting a deal between the House and Senate on spending limits. Uh, you know, Mitch wants a deal. We want a deal. We're not that far off. Uh, but if the president has to sign off on it, who knows? And that's true of everything. We saw it with infrastructure. We, mm-hmm. We've seen it with uh, with way back with the Dream Act, where he he said put it put something on my desk and I'll sign it. Right. And then he backed away. Uh, this is I, I don't know how you do business in this environment. The the meeting the so-called infrastructure meeting followed a caucus meeting in the House yesterday morning, uh, where the speaker. Um, my, my understanding is called that meeting partly for the purpose of reporting to members how what progress is being made. Uh, and there were several voices raised in the, in the meeting uh, saying, no, we, we really should start toward impeachment hearings. Where do you stand on that question? Well, I've, I have a, uh, a nuanced position. I fully uh, believe or strongly believe he's committed impeachable offenses. I, he does it on a daily basis. I, I signed on to a, an impeachment resolution in the last Congress. Uh, and I think we're going to end up in impeachment. But I do believe she's doing the right thing. Nancy's doing the right thing. I think we need to let some of these investigations play out because they may reveal a number of other problems that for which the, the Trump, either Trump or his administration, need to be held accountable. And I'm talking about foreign, other foreign entanglements, not just with Russia, but with Saudi Arabia and maybe other countries. Um, financial misdealings that we're now getting some of those records, which is, I think, important. So I think we ought to let that play out for a little while. Now, I don't think we can let it play out for long. I don't think we can go to next year and, and say, okay, well, we're going to start initiating. Because you, if you initiate a formal impeachment inquiry in an election year, uh, that's, then it's going to look totally political. So I think we have to expedite our investigations to see if there's anything else we need to, uh, to hold him accountable the, the, for. It, we're, we're early yet. We're only in May 2019. But... But I hear you're saying is the closer we get to November 2020, you know, the, the less possible it would be to really open an impeachment inquiry. Exactly. So we're talking maybe Labor Day or that's what I figure. I figure sometime in the fall we would have to do it. Again, I think we are doing almost exactly what we would do if we had a formal impeachment inquiry. I mean, the Judiciary Committee's, you know, subpoenaed a lot of people, sent out requests for a lot of documents, all of which would be. Uh, pursuant to a an impeachment inquiry. So we're doing a lot of the work that would be done. We formally called it that. So I, once we, I think it, it probably, we're probably on a good timetable. Right. Yeah. Um, and showing some results. Two judges this week. Very, very important. Two judges uh, ruling, not just ruling that Congress had a right to ask for or to demand the, the uh, witnesses and the documentation they've asked for, we've asked for, but also that the arguments the administration raised were ba- basically without any substance at all. So, I mean, they ridiculed essentially the judges ridiculed the administration position, which is important because mm-hmm. you know we we believe that Congress, the Constitution gives the Congress uh, pretty much unlimited power to ask for uh, information from the administration. That's our responsibility to provide oversight. Are we in a constitutional crisis? We're close. Again, if the courts hold up, then we will have averted one, I think. But, I mean, we we will have averted one area, one level of it. Yeah. We still don't know whether Sorry. the administration is going to comply with a court order. Then, if they don't, you know, if the Court of Appeals, uh, the uh, Second Circuit uh, affirms 
that decision and then and the court the Supreme Court says we're not going to hear it then and the administration says we're not giving it up anyway then then we have a constitutional crisis yeah I mean so if the the president who has defied Congress and the subpoenas uh, and then defies a court order to comply with those subpoenas he's basically um, rejected two branches of government exactly Exactly. Uh, that's the constitutional crisis. That's the constitutional crisis. Right. I mean, I think we're 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 certainly in a, a very serious constitutional challenge right now, uh, when a president of the United States says, "I'm not cooperating at all with Congress," and now says, "I'm not going to even work with Congress <laughs> unless unless they stop doing their job." Right. So, what do you say to those people though, who say um, uh, that? Look, obviously, he's committed impeachable offenses. Um, we should impeach him. He should be impeached. We have the votes in the House. But there is no way at all that there'll ever be enough votes in the Senate to convict him. So therefore, impeachment will fail. Uh, so why go? Why yeah. spend the time and the energy doing it? Perfectly legitimate question. My answer to that is, if we don't impeach this president for what he has done and continues to do, impeachment means nothing. We might as well eliminate it from the Constitution. Uh, and we've got a responsibility. We're, we're the prosecutor in this, in this case, and our, our responsibility is to see if there's a reason to indict this president. And that, you can't just say, okay, he's committed crimes, but we know we can't get a conviction, so we're not going to indict him. We, no, I think we have to. If, you know, you, you indicted President, we indicted President Clinton. I for wasn't a there, lot of course, less. for yeah. a lot less. Uh, <laughs> essentially... President Nixon was indicted for exactly the same thing that this president has done. But I don't think Nixon did it as comprehensively and as this president has done. I talked to one uh, former federal prosecutor who told me uh, that he had prosecuted successfully a couple dozen obstruction of, judging, of judgment justice mm-hmm. cases in his career, and none of the, in none of them did he have the evidence that's already in the, in the Mueller report. Right, uh, the ten different cases that yeah. Mueller that Mueller cited in terms of obstruction of justice. Right. The other argument that I've heard too, and I, a Speaker Pelosi has made this argument, is that uh, if there's anybody who really wants impeachment hearings to begin, it's Donald Trump. That this is like his dream because then this is, this is just some, this is what he'll run on in 2020. Uh, uh, so in yeah. a sense, maybe he could even be goading Democrats into starting impeachment hearings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're afraid of that? I recognize that that's a dynamic that's possible, but I still, you know, Speaker has said on numerous occasions, uh, political considerations are not a reason to indict him, um, to mm-hmm. to impeach. impeach him, or to avoid impeaching him. And I totally agree; it should not be a political calculation. Right. Um, uh, the the. It's, uh, uh, the but the speaker still has the votes, right? For now, <laughs> she does. Yeah, yeah. I, I th- you know the way I've described it is a, a significant majority of the of the caucus uh, is supports her strategy, and I do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a growing uh, share of the caucus, a significant majority, I think, believes that impeachment's inevitable. That's the word I, I inevitable. I know that you yeah. used yesterday right. on CNN. I wanted to ask you about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That and and we may we may end up there. Meanwhile, um, in terms of a new indicator earlier, and this is this does get lost. The House has passed some significant legislation in terms of prescription drugs and voter right. voting rights reform and 
and on and on. Right. Um, Medicare. What's happening on the Medicare front? Well, yesterday uh, in the rules, I mean, the rules committee. The rules committee yeah. already had a hearing on it. In my budget committee, we had a hearing on uh, on Medicare for all. <laughs> Basically, with we had asked the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, to do an analysis of all the issues you'd have to resolve in putting together a single payer health care system because. It's an incredibly complicated proposition, yeah. as you might expect. You're dealing with 18% of the economy and, and the health care of 329 million people right now. And, and so we had a hearing with the CBO where we could ask questions about how you would go about constructing a Medicare for all or a single-payer system and what the trade-offs are. Uh, and I think it was very valuable. Uh, for us, it was valuable only to uh, if – I mean, it was valued in a number of ways, but – Specifically, we got to hear all the Republican arg- arguments against it, mm, and mm-hmm. and they're basically, you know, they're screaming socialized medicine and and things like that, and you know, it, it, in in my remarks, I talked about the fact that now having been involved in healthcare legislation for ten years, <clears throat> starting with the ACA, <clears throat> it's clear that the Republicans really don't have any idea how to approach healthcare. They've never come up with anything, have they? Never no. come up from, with anything, and. You know, they, you can only infer from their position that they want to go back to where we were before the ACA, which, you know, they think is the glory days. And the yeah. glory days were in 2009, premiums went up 38 percent across the country, 18,000 unnecessary deaths because of lack of insurance, uh, 800,000 bankruptcies, all of those and, and tens of millions shows, without any coverage at all. Almost 50 million at that point really? uninsured. Yeah. yeah. So, you know... You either want to you either want to improve the healthcare system or you don't, and you know I I think it's crazy when Republicans say go out and say oh we're for protecting people with pre-existing conditions when every proposal that they've submitted would subject people with pre-existing conditions to basically impossible circumstances. What they say is yeah we we guarantee that somebody with a pre-existing condition can buy insurance, but we don't protect them from uh, free market pricing, which right. means you but, can buy it, but it, you can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, so basically, they haven't protected them. But no, that's and what then they do. and then the Trump administration is in court supporting the state's attorney general, attorneys general who want to want to completely abolish <laughs> completely the abolish ACA. every provision of the ACA, including right. protection for people with preexisting conditions. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so. I come I come from a state which had arguably mm-hmm. the the most successful implementation yep. of of the ACA. We have a half million people now covered under expanded Medicaid. Uh, the health health uh, condition of our state has improved dramatically in the last few years because of that. And we have a governor also who's trying to unravel it in Kentucky. Right. Connect. Wasn't it called Connect? It was called Connect. K Y N E C T. Right. So. Um, uh, uh, in terms of Medicare for all, there are various versions of on a, you know variations on a theme with Medicare for all. I mean, Bernie Sanders maybe, but the most um, the most progressive, if you will, and others say, but it would not happen. One people, I think this is correct. It would not happen overnight, anyhow, right? It, it couldn't, and that was one of the issues that the CBO brought up that we discussed yesterday. Uh, the transition period is important because if you go to a Medicare for All system where everybody is covered under a government-run program, that's going to be very disruptive. You've got 160 million people right now who are in employer-based insurance uh, mm-hmm. insurance policies. Uh, you've got Medicaid on the side. You've got the VA. You have to decide what happens to the VA, is <laughs> whether it remains a separate entity or not. So again, all these questions. But 
you know, in in the House bill that's the most discussed, which is Pramila Jayapal's bill, uh, there's a two-year transition period. Well, in my opinion, that's impossible. There are yeah. a lot of good things in Pramila's bill, and I'm going to co-sponsor that along with some of the other measures just because I want to show support for the concept. But uh, two years is, you know, it, we basically didn't have full uh, implementation of the ACA for, for four years. And that wasn't nearly as disruptive because it left so much of the system in place. We also remember, though, after that period, when they fr- fi- finally got around to launching it, it was a mess, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a mess. and uh, <laughs> it, it worked itself out, but I remember there was a period of six months or so where nobody knew what was right, going on. Right, and unfortunately it was during election season, and yeah. we, we, we paid the price for that. And one of the other things that is important is we made a huge mistake with the ACA in that we kept talking about the benefits to the uninsured. We never talked to the Americans who already had insurance Mm-hmm. And to reassure them that they were going to have a better system, we weren't taking anything Good away point. from them. Good point. Yeah. And that's what I keep stressing about Medicare for All. We have to go through an education process with the American people to to show them how they could be better off in in this system, uh, how it would save them money, how you know they wouldn't lose access to their doctors, they wouldn't. As a matter of fact, they probably would have greater uh, greater choices, uh, in, depending again on the way you structure it. But that's a long education process, and before we get public, true public buy-in for a Medicare for All uh, system, we're going to have to do that. You, uh, you alluded earlier to the budget, uh, uh, to a budget deal. Um, so, if if you have, particularly after what happened yesterday, it's hard to believe that anything constructive is going to be done in the next eighteen months between this Congress. And the White House, first of all, between the House and the Senate, but certainly between this Congress and the White House. Um, but one thing that's got to get done is a budget deal, right? We have to fund the government. We don't yeah. want another shutdown. And, right. uh, you know, I know. How close we are we? Where are we on the, that? I'll tell you, What's the, person the who, well, the person who least wants a shutdown is Mitch McConnell. <laughs> I guarantee it. Not only because he, he understands the jeopardy that that would put his majority in, he's personally, he's on the ballot next year as well. So he's, he's very committed to avoiding the shutdown. The problem is that you've got in the White House, you've got a, a temperamental president and a, uh, a very volatile president. You never know what he's going to be. And you've got a chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who's a friend of mine. Uh, but Mick has never, for instance, never served in the minority. Mm-hmm. Now, so he doesn't realize that what the majority in another, the other party's hands means. At least he hasn't dealt with that. And he would like to see the pre- the president's budget vision implemented, which would be severe cuts to non-defense spending, uh, an increase in defense spending, uh, but overall reduction in, in spending. Nobody's in favor of that. And <clears throat> uh, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but if we don't, by law, change the limits on spending for the, for the next year or two, uh, we will have face a severe cut to both defense and automatic cuts to defense and non-defense spending because of uh, the Budget Control Act of 2011, that right. what's so-called sequestration. So it'd be 11 percent cut in defense, 9 percent cut in non-defense, and just so people understand, non-defense discretionary spending is not, as many people think, all social spending. Uh, it includes Homeland Security. It includes includes the FBI. It includes mm. the FDA. It includes the FAA. That includes veterans' support, all things that are part of our national security. When does all this come to a head? Uh, well, 
it could go till September 30th, which is the the end of the fiscal year. Yeah. So October 1st begins the next fiscal year, and we need to have spending done by that time. Uh, if we now we can go ahead and appropriate money, the president the president would have to sign that those appropriations bills, uh, but that's really when it all needs to get done. Or we face either a continuing resolution or a shutdown. Uh, let's talk about Kentucky a little bit because this year. Not next year. This year is your big governor's race in Kentucky right. uh, with uh, Governor Bevin um, up for re-election. Uh, Democrats have a chance? We definitely have a chance. Governor Bevin is the least popular governor in the United States, according huh. to, to the polling. Uh, he has spent his last uh, three and a half years basically alienating a large segment of the population. Uh, almost, it seems almost deliberately he's gone to war with teachers. He's gone to war with his own party and the and the General Assembly. And he's down around 30 percent approval rating, 55 percent disapproval rating. Yeah. He in the primary, he faced a, a primary challenge from actually three Republicans, but one who uh, is a first term state legislator, got 39 percent of the vote. Bevin only got 52 percent of Republicans votes. That shows me that there's somebody who's very vulnerable. Yeah. Incumbent governor got only 52 percent of, of his own primary. party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, and that is, again, this year. That's this year. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, Mitch McConnell, um, whom I'm not speaking for you, certainly, <laughs> but necessarily, but all of the rest of us would love to see out of office, certainly. Yeah. The Grim Reaper, <laughs> as he is. He, has he calls himself the Grim Reaper, yeah, yes. right. Um, it, it, Democrats have a candidate against Mitch McConnell. Well, we remember we, the last we have candidate. Couple, yeah, we have a few um, opportunities. Yeah, the last, How about John Yarmouth? Uh, no, no. I, first of all, I'm not going to be in government for six more <laughs> years. Well, that would be seven, seven yeah. and a half more years. I'm not going to. I don't want to be in government that long, and uh, I, I don't really want to represent. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, let me put it this way: I would have to be a very different person to represent the rest of the state. I wouldn't. I couldn't be true to myself, and I don't want. That's mm. just not who I am. So, um, we have a. Potentially, Amy McGrath, who ran for a congressional seat last year, former right. Air Force yeah. pilot. Very attractive uh, candidate. Um, she's thinking about running. Uh, there's a sports talk show host named Matt Jones who is thinking about running. And Matt does a statewide show about University of Kentucky sports. And the fascinating hmm. thing about Matt, he's young. He's, uh, he's very, very uh, articulate and glib. But as you would expect, they talk, you know, talk show host. Just yeah, there we go. Who could possibly be crazy <laughs> enough to make the jump from talk radio to politics? <laughs> <Right>. Jeez. <laughs> but um, but he has the opportunity because most of his audience is conservative and Republican. Sure. He has an opportunity to convert Republican votes, which makes him intriguing. And of course, one of the two candidates who just lost our Democratic primary might be able mm -hmm. to do it as well. So I think we'll have a, a strong candidate. Mitch is Mitch is also polling very poorly. In one poll recently, he polled a 25 percent approval rating statewide. That's not where you want to be. Yeah. Uh, so, but right. anyway, but presumably Donald Trump's going to be at the top of the ballot, and not that might yeah. make it hard for a a Democratic candidate running statewide next year. Uh, just a few minutes left here, Congressman. But let's say, um, you know, we're moving to a new trans transitioning to a right. podcast. We want to continue to keep in touch with you uh, in that phase of the Bill Press Show. But meanwhile, for the last, I don't know how many years, you've been such a great friend and such a great guest. 
We thank you so much for your time coming in. Well, I've always enjoyed uh, the show. Everybody's <laughs> going to wonder what this bottle of bourbon is doing sitting here. Right. So. Well, we have we have uh, sort of joked <laughs> over the years yes. about about bringing bourbon and having it on on the program. Bill and, wasn't joking, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I always promised to do it and and never did. So well, from, on, on my last appearance here, I thought I'd bring some great Kentucky bourbon. Well, and, um, well, our last a show is lovely on parting gift. Thank you. Our last show is on uh, Friday, May thirty first. We're having a big party on Saturday, June one. This will be there for uh, all of our friends at the party on Saturday, June one. Good. And we'll think of you as chairman of the House Bourbon Caucus. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Congressman. Thanks, Great to Bill. see you, Thank Congressman you. Mark Pocan. Coming up next. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Baby Donnie threw a temper tantrum. Oh, man, haven't seen anything like that in the Rose Garden ever. And we'll see if uh, he'll recover today. Uh, probably not. But uh, Speaker Pelosi certainly held her own. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Thursday, May 23rd. Uh, here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio on Capitol Hill. And we join you coast to coast all over this great land of ours online, on the radio, and on television with lots and lots to talk about. Yeah, the uh, so this is infrastructure week. <laughs> See how that worked out. Uh, and joining us in studio for this half, next half hour, our, our good friend from uh, Wisconsin and uh, the co chair of the House Progressive Caucus, uh, Congressman Mark Pocan. Hey, Congressman, good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Uh, every time Infrastructure Week comes along, <laughs> it's just sort of people get their hopes up and then it all blows up, right? It, it blows up, and this week apparently Donald Trump meant infrastructure in his sandbox um, <laughs> from his behavior. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an important issue, but it looks like we'd never get there, well, right? You know, but don't forget what happened. I mean, the night before, the president sent a letter saying, well, if you oh, don't yeah. do trade, then we can't do infrastructure. He was yeah, setting so. it up because he didn't know how to fund infrastructure. And then all of a sudden, so, when this happened, that was yeah. his most recent So he experience. never really intended it on the first place, right? Yeah. That would that would involve planning and governing and oh. things like that. And thinking, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congressman Mark Buchan with us and all of you. I look forward to hearing your comments on the news of the day. On Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, and we will jump right into it with all the news of the day. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. So we played some audio earlier this week from Beto O'Rourke's big town hall on Tuesday night. He had yes. a big CNN town yes. hall. Uh, well, the ratings are in. Uh, 
Uh-huh. Not exactly a ratings winner for no. CNN or Beto O'Rourke. In fact, they said uh, that it was a dip from their usual programming that they have at that time slot. Uh, it attracted only an average of 714,000 viewers. Whoa, that surprises me. That is 29% less yeah. than where it usually is. Yeah, the others were getting about 1.2, 1.1, so whatever. Yeah. Huh. I'm, I'm not I saying it's, would... it's good or yeah. bad. I'm just right. saying these are the facts. And, that's that, that's how it is. So whether or not people are still excited about Beto, it appears as though they are not at the CNN town hall. Anyway, we'll say right. that. Uh, hey, remember Mario Batali, the celebrity chef? Yeah. Uh, well, he got in a lot of trouble because of groping allegations and sexual harassment, and uh, even some. He was not accused of sexual assault per se, but he allowed yeah. it to go on in his restaurants and turned a blind eye to it. Well, now uh, things have gotten a little more complicated for him because he may actually face charges for some of these allegations. Uh Criminal charges have been brought up. This is uh, with regards to a situation that happened in Boston in March of 2017. He is facing indecent assault and battery charge in connection with an alleged alleged incident that happened in a restaurant in Boston's uh, Boston's Back Bay neighborhood. Trouble. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Not good. And I find this story to be fascinating. The remains of what has been called the last U.S. slave ship have been found. Whoa. They have been found. They, they found a lot of these slave ships over the years that have sunk or, you know, have, were, were, for lack of better words, retired and taken out of the water. But there was one that they knew sunk somewhere off the coast of Alabama. Well, they found it in the Mobile, Mobile I should say, river. It's called the Clotilda was the name of the ship. Uh, and it was used to smuggle men, women, and children into America from Africa. But they found it. They found the remains of it. Uh, it was intentionally sunk in 1860 to hide evidence of what it was being used for. Right. I, yeah. Uh, 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 what's curious about that to me is that it was, a, you said, a U.S. slave ship. I thought, you know, some of them that uh, other countries were selling mm-hmm. the slaves here, but yeah. we had some of our own yep. slave ships, I guess. Wow. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, it's Infrastructure Week. How's that working out? (laughs) We saw yesterday, right? Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show, and you are very much a part of it, and we welcome you to the program here on this Thursday, May 23rd. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, our studio right here on Capitol Hill, where we've got uh, our eye on what's been happening here in Washington, a lot yesterday to talk about, uh, as well as around the country and around the globe. We will bring the news to you, and you tell us what it all means to you by sending us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. So we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and remind you, as we move to a podcast starting first week of June, uh, be sure that we you follow us and we can move you along to the podcast version of the program by going, uh, if you haven't already done so, and signing up for our podcast, existing podcast, on Bill, at BillPressShow.com. And also follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Joining on the radio stay, uh, in uh, the whole Chicago and the greater area around Chicago 
on the one and only WCPT and on television on Free Speech TV. And here with us in studio, honoring us again with his presence from um, Wisconsin's second congressional district, a chair, co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus, Congressman Mark Pocan. Congressman, good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Now, before we get into the news business of the day, I've got to ask you, I thought of you the other night because I actually went to a magic show. Oh, really? Because Congressman <laughs> wears many hats. He's, you know, he's the congressman from Wisconsin's second district. He's also co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, and he is a magician. <laughs> well, you have a business, a sign business, yeah. and then you also do magic tricks on the Because I've got a lot of spare time. Yeah, right. Clearly, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I wonder if you've heard of this young man, Shin Lim. Oh, yeah. Shin Lim. He just won America's Got Talent. He did. Yeah. 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 Right. Where'd you, what, where'd you see him at? At the Library of Congress. It's a special program. I was the MC for the program, oh, and he neat. was the entertainment. Very cool. Boy, I got to tell you. Yeah. He is really good. He, he just performed with a, a friend of mine, Ben Seidman, from Wisconsin uh, in Connecticut. Uh, they had about 4,000 people uh, in an audience, and I know he's coming back through the area in October um, in D.C. In D.C.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, he's very, very good. I've seen him at conventions, and um, yeah. And they're it's setting a up a, a big theater for him now in, um, uh, in Las Vegas, where he'll be. Yeah, I think whenever you win America's Got Talent, not only did he win America's Got Talent, but then he won like the best of, so all the winners from various years, yes, and then he yes. won that as a follow up. So um, no, it's a gr- it's a great act. He'll have performer. a very very good career in Las Vegas. Yes. They, yeah, he's going to get a huge. I'm sure because I saw this last one in Las Vegas. The, one of the last winners of America's Got Talent. They get their own theater. They have their billboards everywhere. Yeah, yeah. people are going to flock. Plus, you to know, that. you've got Penn and Teller there. Yeah. And you have David Copperfield, yeah. right? The big, uh, the illusionist, yep. right? As a yep. magician. So, yeah. And then Matt Franco, a former winner. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's got a theater there. And there's a whole bunch of other folks. But I'm just I saying, mean, Congressman, yeah. after this politics thing, that's is what we're no, 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 no. Hey, You know, I've got to know and become friends with David Copperfield oh, uh, wow. through this job, which is very oh, cool. Really? Yeah, and you know, he's um, he's like a billionaire from doing he's, magic. I was going to say he's yeah, one yeah, of the yeah, wealthiest yeah, people yeah. on the planet. I, yeah. I totally uh, went the wrong direction with my youth. <laughs> I, I, instead of continuing to play with cards and coins and and, and deceiving people, I went into the politics business, which some people would say is about <laughs> deceiving people. So I, I, I don't know how much I shifted, but I just shifted for less money, apparently. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's noble. Well, yes. I, I, again, I kept thinking of you, and I wish you had been with me, and you could have told me how he pulled these tricks yeah. off. I mean, there, no, he, he is so good. He's very good and, and very innovative. A lot of the stuff he does hasn't been done previously, which is why I think he wins so many yeah. awards. And yeah. things, so. All right. Yeah. On, to, on to the magic of the day, right, or whatever. What was your take on... Uh, the president's little temper tantrum yesterday, walking out of that infrastructure meeting and storming into the Rose Garden and slamming Nancy Pelosi and all the yeah. members of Congress. Well, I mean, first of all, you knew he didn't have he didn't do his homework, right? He didn't come up with the funding like he was supposed to for the meeting. That was three weeks after they agreed to two trillion dollars. So he was setting it up the night before that he couldn't do it if we didn't pass trade. And then when this happened, he threw his uh, little fit. And a reporter back home asked me, like, how do you deal with it? What's next? I said, I don't know. I have to go find an elementary school teacher to find out how you deal with adolescence. <laughs> I mean, you know, clearly uh, this was um, him 
being Donald Trump, the petulant man-child at his best. And, uh, and, and for whatever reason, I think it's great, though, Nancy Pelosi does get under his skin. Um, but she, you know, is still very committed to doing infrastructure. We are, as Democrats, committed to getting it done. Um, whether or not Donald Trump will eventually grow up and, you know, move along with us. But, you know, I just think this whole narrative that he's trying to say that, you know, we have to stop investigations, that we want to do over. No, we just want to see the final score. What he won't mm-hmm. do is let us get the witnesses in that we're required to, that Mr. Mueller said we need to, to look at the 10 charges of obstruction. The fact that he keeps saying he's um, innocent uh, and the fact that uh, he keeps blocking every witness from coming to Congress is incredible. doesn't pass the smell test uh, in Wisconsin. Um, if you're an innocent man, you would give the person a ride. You'd give them a bottle of water so their voice is really clear <laughs> yeah. so they can explain how innocent the president is. And instead, um, he's doing uh, everything that a, a child who just broke something would do when they don't want the parent to know they broke something. Well, And, and he does say, I'm willing to work with you. I'll do anything. Infrastructure is what I do. In fact, uh, Peter, I think we have that that bite from the from the Rose Garden again yesterday. With there's just one condition, right? When they get everything done, I'm all set to let's get infrastructure, let's get drug prices down. In the meantime, we're doing tremendous work without them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you just yeah. <laughs> if you would just stop holding hearings, Congressman, right? Right, right, right. If you stop just, doing oversight, stop doing uh, the duties of a separate but co-equal branch of government. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be just fine. If right? you would just stop doing your job. Yeah. Well, well, clearly he can't do infrastructure because this is like, you know, the 10th mm-hmm. week he's tried to do infrastructure in, in, in his term. Um, what he apparently is really good at is losing money, uh, which is why we're trying to get his tax records just to see exactly, um, you know, what he's up to and to know the decisions he's making. He's doing on behalf of the American people and not on behalf of Donald Trump. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was just a classic day. I think I don't think he came looking good out of yesterday um, or the day before. It was just it was too much for him to try to claim that, um, you know, until we stop everything, he's not going to move ahead with something that's important for the American people. Uh, I saw the CNN this morning called this the point of no return in terms of getting anything realistically, getting anything done in the next 18 months. Do you think that's right? No, I mean, I, I, I just sat down with Nancy Pelosi yesterday, we, uh, about a dozen of us, and, you know, she is very, very committed to trying to move prescription drugs and infrastructure um, we already moved our uh, trying to address the culture of corruption in Washington, H.R. 1. Yeah, and we're going to yeah. continue to break that out into more bills to see what we can get the Senate to take up. The problem is the Senate's doing nothing. I talked to Bernie Sanders yesterday and he said other than approving awful judges, uh, they don't they don't have anything to vote on um, because Mitch McConnell is too afraid uh, to do anything because he's afraid he's going to get a primary. And, and that's why Lindsey Graham has also become a Trump sycophant because, you know, he's afraid of a primary. And because of that, uh, we're not able to do anything, apparently, in the U.S. Senate. But, you know, Nancy is very, very committed and trying, she's trying to put proposals that the president had previously talked about together and she's still negotiating. And then he does things like he did this week. Right. Um, so the the meeting, there was another meeting yesterday of the Democratic Caucus uh, on the issue of uh, how well the hearings are going and what progress is being made. Uh, and yet at the same time, there are voices, there were voices raised yesterday. And, and it seems like every day there are more Democratic voices saying, 
uh, look, this is just not working. We have no choice. He's committed impeachable offenses. We have to start an impeachment inquiry. Where's your vote? Um, I, I'm in the impeachment inquiry uh, category. You know, for me, the right now, today. Yeah. Yeah, Go. the, the, the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back was when Don McGahn couldn't testify. I mean, if we're going to be blocked at every turn from doing our job, which is what Mr. Mueller laid out, is there's 10 charges of obstruction that it's up to Congress, not up to the attorney general or the president, but up to Congress to actually get to the bottom of. And that he was very clear in the report. That's what our job was. So we had to bring in. If you read the stuff about Don McGahn, I mean— you know, the president keeps mm. saying, oh, I didn't tell him to fire Mueller. If you read the report, you told him to get rid of him, make sure he's not there. Like every every euphemism but uh, fire. And and he's trying to claim because he didn't use the yeah, magic he's word. A, he's a conflict. <laughs> he can't continue to serve in that position. You got He's got to go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was. And, and so, you know, that's one of the obstruction charges that, according to Mr. Mueller, that we have to look at. And the fact that we can't get, you know, anything, any cooperation whatsoever um, means, again, he's hiding something. And uh, it, the only way that many of us see to how to proceed, because he's disrespecting the American people by not allowing any of these people to come testify and certainly not looking like an innocent person, is to start an impeachment inquiry where we have a few more tools to get people to compel them to come to Congress. And uh, that's why I think now it's somewhere between 30 and 40 members are in that camp. And uh, most of it broke in the last 48 hours. Right. Uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly been a, little, a flood of yeah. new voices, um, uh, again, prompted by some of the things that Donald, his response yeah. to, 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 to some of the requests for either witnesses or documents well, or, or whatever. Well, he's clearly not going to cooperate at any level. And and now most recently with his, until you stop this, we're not going to do anything. I mean, I have. if you wrote a novel about a really, really guilty person, you couldn't have been any more, you know, um, uh, clear in, in drawing someone who looks exactly like Donald Trump. I mean, by not wanting anyone to come, by saying if you keep doing this, we're not going to do anything else that the American people need, uh, is a guy who clearly uh, knows he did something wrong. And while the attorney general was willing to uh, violate his uh, trust with the American people in order to be Donald Trump's personal lawyer, um, we're not going to take on that role. Right. Um, the arguments on the other side, and I'm sure you've heard these from the speaker, um, or like three or four maybe. One, this is going to suck up all the oxygen in the room if we go this route, and we won't. there clearly will not be any legislative agenda. Um, two, that the American people aren't really behind us on this. Uh, it would be strictly one-sided Democrat, uh, Democratic side and not much support from the American people. Um, three, that this could be exactly what Donald Trump wants, right? Uh, and we'd be walking right to have this whole thing for the next 18 months, just like he railed against the Mueller report and now be railing yeah. against impeachment. And four, that is not going to happen anyway because we're not going to get rid of him anyway by, through impeachment because there are not, no votes in, there are not enough votes in the Senate and never will be. So those are pretty strong arguments. Yeah. I, I would argue, though, this isn't a political calculation. It's a constitutional um uh, application we have to look at it through. So if he's done something wrong, uh, my oath was to the Constitution, not to Nancy Pelosi or the Democratic Party, is a, is a political thing. And I'm not saying anything bad about her. Yeah. In saying that, I'm saying uh, it has risen to something we have to do. And that's why uh, I think many of us are saying we need to move forward. Secondly, uh, it is the only thing reporters ask us about. Uh, we recently did a pen and pad reporter thing with the Progressive Caucus. And uh, after we talked about the meaty bills that we're doing and trying to advocate for, uh, the only two questions that came up were about the DCCC and uh, mainly about impeachment. So this way, 
at least we can say, look, uh, okay, we've started the impeachment inquiry. We're moving down that process at the same time. Hey, did you see what we did about prescription drugs? Let's start reporting. We, If we can walk and chew gum at the same time, maybe the press corps can walk and chew gum at the same time, <laughs> right? And we would like to have uh, a broader thing. But that already is happening. I mean, that is the only question that people ask about. And for us to pretend somehow that they're covering anything else, um, they're not. Uh, so by starting the inquiry, we can actually get the witnesses to come. We feel that's the best thing to do uh, according to our constitutional responsibilities. And then um, we can still move forward and do the bills we're doing, which we are doing a lot of substantial stuff around cleaning up the corruption in Washington, gun violence prevention, uh, health care, pay equity. Uh, you know, go down the list, uh, retirement security just uh, this week. Um, but no one's covering those things. And that may be our best way to try to get them covered. Right. Um, your co-chair, Pramila Jayapal from Washington State, has introduced a Medicare for All bill. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a s- supporter of that? And um, th- that seems to be like almost all the dem- 2020 Democratic candidates have endorsed some version yeah. of Medicare for All. Where is it going? Um, so this session really is the building the public support session. We've had at least one hearing already. We'll have more congressional hearings because several committees have oversight over the area. But we know we've got to build uh, not just – even though the, the polling tells us the public supports there, this is one of those issues that falls uh, on the bumper sticker I have for my campaign, which is if the people lead, eventually the leaders will follow. We have to bring the leaders on board to understand where the people are at on this issue. So that's what we're doing with it. Uh, more realistically, I think we could get a bill on the floor of Congress around prescription drugs, that aspect of the Medicare for All bill, and we're, we're fighting to try to get that done. Mm-hmm. But really, this is an organizational period for us to try to get more legislators to realize that uh, given all the, the fights over health care, American people are ready to say Canada and most of Europe are not third world countries. We, too, can have health care for every single person. Right. Uh, do you have a majority? Or is it a majority yet in the House for Medicare for all? In some version, I guess. Huh? Um, Maybe. So, I'm not of the caucus yet. I think we're just shy of that. Um, so that's why there's a, a process still. And we all acknowledge that. None of us think it's going to pass this year uh, on the floor of the Congress and that we know with the Senate and the president will be blocked anyway. Um, but this is a good chance to get explained to people why this makes so much more sense. How long does it take to move from where we are today under the ACA to a Medicare for all? It's going to take the political will. I mean, I, I think this is an issue where, again, I think it can't oh, be overnight. No, no. And the Reuters poll I, I looked at a couple of months ago, 71 percent support, including 52 percent of Republicans. I mean, we know people are fed up with watching the death by a thousand cuts that the Trump administration and the Republicans did to the ACA. Uh, quite honestly, if you have a plan with a $5,000 deductible, that's not affordable for most every American family. And we have to figure out how to address it. They won't help us fix this. So people are just like, look, I'm tired of it all. Why Canada does this. Europe does this. Why can't we just have a system where I can go to the doctor when I'm sick? Because that would make sense. And that is what the bill's about. Um, the people are there, but you know, with a lot of special interests, as you know, in Washington. One thing I just found out recently, Bill, there's almost 1,500 lobbyists for pharma in this town. <laughs> that's three no. for every member of Congress. I'm not sure who my three are, yeah. uh, but that's the number. They spent almost $300 million last year uh, lobbying Congress. So that's just the pharmaceutical industry, much less all the other industries right. that are around. So this is not something that's going to happen real easily by people who 
uh, unfortunately have to uh, far too often raise money and, and have other interactions with these special interests in Washington. We win when their constituents uh, bring this to the top level. And I think, you know, one thing next week, we're all home, uh, at least in the House. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have town halls. People need to show up at those town halls and let your member of Congress know where you stand on issues. That's the single best way for us to get something done like Medicare for All. Uh, you mentioned that you had spoken to uh, Senator Bernie Sanders yesterday, um, and I guess that is your way of telling us that um, Bernie Sanders is your candidate for 2020? Um, I have not endorsed anyone yet, but I will tell you, uh, we would not be talking about any of the issues that the Progressive Caucus talks about had it not been for Bernie Sanders uh, previously running and making them national issues. I mean, Medicare popular widespread issue until Bernie Sanders brought it to that place by running for president. Now we talk about it in a in a, a very real way that this could someday very soon uh, hopefully be a reality in this country. So I think we all owe a, an enormous uh, debt of gratitude to the work that Bernie Sanders has done. Having said that, I'm trying to get all the candidates to take on progressive <laughs> policies right now. So um, I have, again, enormous respect uh, for Bernie Sanders. And we had a great talk. He you know, really more than any candidate I've seen articulates some of what we're seeing in my district in the rural parts of Wisconsin, uh, which would also be very similar to Iowa, by the way, uh, around the plight of farmers. You know, one of the things that I just wrote a column for a a paper back home uh, last Sunday on the tariffs are killing my farmers. Um, You know, this this arbitrary trade policy Mm -hmm. that the president has. I believe in targeted tariffs. You could use them well. I don't believe the president has a clue what he means by trade. And because of the tariffs he's done, um, I I had a conversation with someone back home who said, well, yeah, but he's giving them relief. The farmers are going to get relief through this package. So I talked to a lot of farmers. And I talked to a farmer who is very connected to the community and said, soybean farmers will get about 50 cents on the dollar. A dairy farmer will get about two cents on the dollar. And a corn grower will get about one cent on the dollar to what they're losing because of the tariffs. There's no way you can continue to have a family farm. And we lost 800 family farms in Wisconsin last year alone. Dairy farms, dairy farms alone. Um, And really, Bernie has articulated this better than anyone else I've heard. And I think if he continues to articulate that, uh, that's a really good position going into Iowa. He comes from Vermont. He understands mm-hmm. this. And those are constituencies that we need in order to take back the White House. Uh, by the way, just a little uh, aside, I heard yesterday at the Center for American Progress Ideas Forum, um, Senator John Tester from Montana mm-hmm. speaking about uh, the potential for votes for Democrats in rural America yeah. on the issues that they should talk about. And they've got a real message that would resonate there if they if they pay attention to, to, yeah. to some of the... And, and things like rural broadband, as you're talking about infrastructure, yeah, and yeah. you go down the list, was, and, you know, yeah, we've yeah. lost more of the manufacturing jobs in the rural parts of America than not, and the only way you can live in a small rural community when you've lost the manufacturing jobs is if you have things like broadband and a post office, and what are Republicans going after? They don't want to put money into broadband, and they don't uh, want to keep the post office open. And, you know, those are the yeah. few ways you can still live in a rural community. Uh, so back to where we started... Um, I remember with you through the 2016 campaign in the primary where uh, the Progressive Caucus was was focusing more on the issues than endorsing any particular candidate. Do you think the caucus will endorse? You've got 24 candidates this time. Yeah, I, I, the caucus will probably never do official endorsement. We only do that with members of Congress. But uh, where you see members line up, uh, you know, right now I think Peter Welch, who obviously is from Vermont, uh, right. Ro Khanna, I know both have endorsed um, Bernie at this point. A lot of our members have endorsed 
uh, different people in the race. A couple have endorsed Kamala Harris from California. Yeah, and I think uh, Don Byer endorsed uh, Pete Buttigieg. um, And uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few others who've done something in it. Um, At at this point... uh, I'm, you know, there are so many candidates. Like when you're talking about the ratings on CNN, I think the more candidates go on CNN, the ratings will probably continue to go down because there's so many candidates. You feel like you've seen the episode after the first few, and it may not have the same interest for a while. We'll see where it flushes out a little. But, um, you know, Bernie sat down with a bunch of us uh, yesterday uh-huh. from the Progressive Caucus uh, to have a good conversation. It was a great conversation. Um, you know, we've uh, I got great respect for Elizabeth Warren and, and others who are running as well. Um, but uh, this is a wild uh, field to have a couple dozen candidates. Uh, is America ready for a gay president of the United States? You know, I, I think this process will tell us who's going to be the best contrast to Donald Trump. Um, Is America ready? I think we are. I mean, marriage equality now is such a high level of support. Uh, There's not really... um, it's like a 70% plus area you're in now. Um, that was always the big issue that we had out there. We just passed the equality bill, even though Republicans weren't quite there. We did have, I think, eight or nine Republicans mm-hmm. join us, but the American people, again, uh, on that issue, understand you shouldn't be fired uh, or lose your housing for who yeah, you love. Uh, the, su- the support is there in polling. Um, to me, it's just, you know, with that many candidates, uh, even though we have wide variety from caucuses to open primaries to close primaries, who comes out of that and what people decide they think is the best contrast, I think probably will put us in a place we've got the best contrast to Donald Trump. And I do believe in the the, the process and the voters in that process. Right. Um, finally, just about a minute left, but you mentioned the DCCC. So this is the rule that uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos put in place yeah. in the DCCC, that they're not going to do any business with any consultant who does work for any body who challenges an incumbent. Is that still in place? Um, apparently it is, but I, I know that she just revisited a fundraiser she was doing for Dan Lipinski, and quite honestly, it's for the same rationale you would get rid of the of rule. It. Yeah, and and we should just drop that as well. I, I think you know she's new, being the D trip chair. Um, we've got to hold a lot of seats. She's trying to do her very best on it. I think that was just a bad call for what they were trying to accomplish. I think they're doing a lot of good stuff, putting people in mm-hmm. the field early, um, which will be helpful. But that rule is not helpful. It's not democratic with a small D, and uh, a number of us would still like to see her change this. All right. Well, Congressman, uh, again, end of the Bill Press Daily Show in the morning. Uh, moving on to a podcast where we will continue to be in touch with you and absolutely, Bill, and, and, uh, and lean on you and 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 want to involve you in that. But it, it, but as we transition, just got to thank you for all the times that you've come in here, Peter. One of our, if you would know. One of our most frequent guests. Yeah, most one, of our, guests, one of our favorite right? guests. So, yeah, well, absolutely. You know, so. you guys, it's a great program. Uh, so appreciated. And, you know, this is in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. Uh, conservative radio dominated. It really hurt us politically for a long time. Yep. And this is why this this is so important for people to be able to hear the ideas. Because they generally, on a polls, they agree with us on just about everything. Uh, but then they find a couple wedge issues to make them vote against their best interests. And this is our way to get the, the thoughts and ideas out. And nowadays, podcasts are absolutely the way. I Even when I get on the plane now, I'm listening to different podcasts. And that's 
uh, the way to get the message out. But it's so important that people can actually hear their articulation. So it's not Donald Trump just saying no uh, obstruction, no collusion. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's been my part of our issue, too, with this. Why why to go to impeachment? Our message is, well, we have six committee chairs that are working on over. Okay, I just lost everyone at that point. Right. That can't be the proper response to no obstruction, no collusion, no obstruction. I, th- right? I think what uh, you just said is the most important point. When people hear these ideas. Yeah. yeah. They like them. And, you know, whether it's progressive media or whether it's progressive politicians or progressive ideas, there's a reason that Republicans and conservatives have tried as hard as they could to push those things down and keep those things quiet. Uh, and Yeah. And keep those voices off the air. Keep yeah. Those, yeah, for sure. Um, well, And some of our best times, by the way. We're uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. That was great having you there. That was. Uh... <laughs> well, those days we were on the show, they are there out in Madison, and, and the few visits that we made in Madison. So yeah, it's a yeah, great, well, you're always welcome back. They're great town and, <laughs> and great people. You throw a good party there. Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So great to see you. When we come back, another man, a very important role here that he's playing uh, nationwide and doing a great job, the chair of the Democratic National Committee. Tom Perez joining us next here on The Bill Press Show. Congressman Mark Brokan, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. And here we go. Welcome back. The Bill Press Show, Thursday, May 23rd. Live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Members of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa active on many, many fronts. Check out their website at teamster.org. And uh, we thank them for the good work and their sponsorship of the uh, show. By the way, one thing we haven't talked about yet is that uh, former Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson sat down for about six hours uh, with members of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee of both Republicans and Democrats, uh, and reportedly, it was a closed-door meeting, but reportedly told them how woefully unprepared Donald Trump was, How, if, first of all, how totally ignorant he was about um, anything to do with foreign policy. What was it? He, he famously called Trump uh, an effing moron. Effing moron at one time. He was still Secretary of yeah, State. Yeah, right. That was after Donald Trump said we should increase uh, our nuclear capacity, the number of nuclear weapons, by 10 uh, but at any rate, he said the president was particularly unprepared and ill-prepared for his meeting with Vladimir Putin where in Helsinki, where Putin walked in and ran circles around him uh, because he'd done all this research and had all this stuff ready for the meeting. And Donald Trump just waltzed in uh, like he used to do uh, in New York, making real estate deals uh, and thought he could um, uh, out, outwit Vladimir Putin. And he did not. At any rate, uh, Donald Trump can't stand any criticism at all when someone um, has to uh, when someone says anything critical. So he just a few minutes ago uh, tweeted out Donald Trump's latest tweet, quote, Rex Tillerson, a man who is dumb as a rock (laughs) and totally ill prepared and ill equipped to be secretary of state, made up a story, parentheses, he got fired that I was out-prepared by Vladimir Putin at a meeting in Hamburg, Germany. I don't think Putin would agree. 
<laughs> Look how the U.S. is doing. Remember, okay. remember by the way, Rex Stoller said, "Dumb as a rock." He, yeah. Remember, he challenged him to, to an IQ test. They were, he's the one that said that he should have an IQ test. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> it just shows the man can take any criticism. Well, we saw that yesterday too, uh, when he uh, threw a little temper tantrum and stormed out of a meeting. That meeting with uh, Speaker Pelosi and Leader. Uh, Schumer down at the White House. Um, we are, uh, you know, winding down here the Daily Bill Press show. And what's great is we have a chance to visit with some of our best friends and uh, most loved guests over the last uh, few years that we've been here every day with you from our studio in Capitol Hill. Uh, and we do so now with a man who's very much in the forefront of what's going on for 2020, leading the charge. Uh, for uh, us Democrats, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, our good friend Tom Perez. Hello, Tom. It's great to see Bill, you, Mr. Great. Chairman. No, Bill. Tom is a lot quicker, and it's great to be with you, with all your listeners. And I, as you know, I'm an unabashed fan of yours, and so grateful for all you've done for the movement. Well, back at you. How are we doing? Oh, I feel very good. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do. We have uh, obviously uh, somebody in the White House who is unhinged. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, people what? you saw falling down yesterday were tripping over the marbles he picked up to go home. Yeah. You know, he's picking up his marbles and going home yesterday. Uh, we have uh, about 530 days until the most important election of our lifetime. And so I'm focused like a laser on that every single day, uh, building the infrastructure so that we can succeed everywhere. Uh, we have a uh, little over a month until our first debate. Yeah. And we've taken unprecedented steps to make sure it's inclusive, that people have an opportunity. I, I periodically get stopped by people who say, Bill, you know, aren't there too many people in the race? Uh, how do you handle such a large field? I think that's a remarkable challenge to have. We've got a deep field of folks who uh, have a remarkably inclusive vision of an America that works for everybody. And, and we've worked tirelessly uh, to build uh, a, a fair and level playing field so that they have an opportunity uh, to make their case directly to the American people. I want to ask you about both of those the things, upcoming things. But uh, I do have to ask you, as someone who served as a labor secretary, by the way, Chris uh, Lou was Chris, in just the other day, uh, your deputy yes, secretary. One of my favorite people as well. Uh, uh, he's a great guy, yeah, um, and a good friend of the program. But as someone who served as Labor Secretary, been around uh, the White House, a couple of administrations, have you ever seen anything like we saw in the Rose Garden yesterday where here's the president of the United States at, at the podium with the presidential seal on it, and he's got a campaign sign on it, basically. No collusion, no obstruction. Well, I mean, there have been so many examples of how the Oval Office and the Rose Garden have been degraded. I mean, the notion that you would allow Victor Orban to come to the White House, was that last week or uh, yeah. the week before? Yeah. Victor Orban wrote the playbook on how to undermine democratic institutions. And frankly, it's a playbook that Donald Trump has been following. When he got elected, the first thing he did was go after the press. Not just Bill Press, but right. the entire press. Uh, the second thing he did was to undermine the institutions of civil society in Hungary, going after uh, George Soros and, and other institutions, universities that are trying to uh, promote democratic principles. Uh, then he goes after the institutions within government, you know, the Ministry of Justice, and tries to take that over. And now he's going after the courts. I mean, Victor Orban is a, uh, a role model for Donald Trump. So every single day, uh, whether it's those visits or what we the shenanigans we saw yesterday, 
the uh, we just see time and time again a, a president who's unfit for the job. And, and at the same time, and this is where we have to uh, make sure that listeners understand, Democrats are working hard in the House to do the work of the American people. Uh, seven or eight bills have been passed in the healthcare context to protect coverage with people with pre-existing mm-hmm. conditions to lower the cost of prescription drugs. That was a promise we made in the midterm cycle. That's a promise that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats have kept. Uh, the Equality Act, a really important piece of of uh, civil rights legislation. Yeah, just last uh, week, passed. I think it was, right. Uh, a common sense gun violence reduction was passed. And, and it's in the graveyard of Mitch McConnell. Uh, but we will continue to do the people's work. And H.R. Uh, 1, which is democracy reform, uh, mm-hmm. really, to me, it's fundamental. We Until we fix our politics, we will have difficulty fixing our democracy. And, and that's why H.R. 1, and again, I would note for your listeners, H.R. 1 in 2017, the, the first bill that the Republicans offered when they had total control oh. in 2017 was a tax cut uh, for yeah. wealthy people. Yeah, the first right. bill that the Democrats offered when we have control of the House was democracy reform. Uh, to make our democracy work for everyone, that the differences couldn't be more stark. And so, while this president is engaged in you know, the culture of corruption and all of those things, Democrats are working hard to do the work of the American people, and we have to make sure we're underscoring that in every community across the country. Now, uh, I get asked that question that you alluded to earlier about the the 2020 field as well, uh, in two senses. Uh, I'd love to get your take. Aren't Aren't you afraid that there aren't we afraid there are too many candidates and they're going to move the party too far to the left? Well, what I, do you tell people? Sure. I mean, I, I get asked that question um, a, a fair yeah. amount. And, I, I, you know, it's not for me, Tom Perez, or for any chair of the Democratic Party to try to take uh, unilateral steps to uh, make the field um, any smaller than it is. I, I think that is up to the voters. And that's why we have set up a very transparent uh, and uh, unprecedented uh, opportunity. I mean, usually polling is the only thing that determines participation on the debate stage. We set up a grassroots fundraising threshold because I firmly believe, Bill, that if you can't demonstrate uh, proficiency in uh, connecting with the grassroots, you can't win the presidency in the year 2020. And so we we did that. And, And the field will will eventually narrow. And, and we're going to have, we have this uh, structure for June and July, and we're going to do uh, a random assignment. So if 20 people are eligible, 10 go one night, 10 go the next. And 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 our, our goal is to maximize eyeballs, to not have a JV and a varsity, and to give the the candidates the chance to um Is it good case. for the party to have that many candidates? Well, I think it's very healthy. And, and I think what we're seeing is uh, we're not. Nobody's going to be talking about hand size at the end of June. You know, they're going <laughs> to yeah. be talking about health care. They're going to be talking about uh, how we build an America that works for everybody, not just a few at the top. And and those are the issues we're going to focus on. They're going to be talking about climate change uh, and and what we have to do and and the sense of urgency with which we have to act. They're going to be talking about women's reproductive health and and. Uh, immigration reform. In short, we're going to be talking about the issues. Now, in the fall bill, yes, we will raise the threshold because that's what you should do. As every month goes by, the candidates have an obligation to demonstrate that they're getting traction. Right. And so, so the first first debate, June 26, 27, right? Right. Miami. 
uh, NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo, Telemundo. and we'll be uh, live streaming. So anytime, every debate, uh, we're we're going to ensure that if if uh, live stream is your uh, the way you consume your news, that you will be able to do that. All right, and then the second debate uh, in Detroit, right? Right, end of uh, July. In July, end of July. Same criteria for the first, uh, for the first. second as for the first, right? Correct. Okay. Um, maximum 20 candidates. Correct. Uh, there are 24 who have declared so far. How many have already qualified? Do you know? Uh, I don't know that for certain yet. We're still, because we don't get the precise data from the candidates uh, until uh, June the 12th is the uh, last day. Is that your cutoff? That, yeah. yeah. That's the cutoff date. And then after that is when we will... Uh, see, but what what I fully so, expect is that there will be a substantial percentage of the candidates who will qualify under both criteria, and the criteria is polling, and then there's another criteria if you have sixty five thousand donors, including at least two hundred in twenty states. Now, if your listeners are wondering, as I would be, how did you come up with that? The nineteen seventy one campaign finance laws that were passed by Congress, we used that as a model, and then we modernized it. Uh, to fit uh, today's world. So we didn't just uh, pull this out of thin air. We wanted to use something that had already, uh, in some meaningful measure, been enacted by Congress. And so I, I, I suspect that uh, you know, at least uh, you know, 10 and perhaps more of the candidates will meet both. And, and that's great. Do they have to meet both, or they do not have or. to meet both? Either um, or, but okay. obviously, if there are tiebreakers, those who are going to meet both are going to be in a better shape. Right. So, uh, in terms of the, so one, the on the polling, it's one percent in the three polls that you Correct. you identify, and then the sixty-five thousand donors, including at least two hundred and twenty different states. Um, uh, there's been some criticism about, and I remember that you when once when you were in recently, I asked you about. Was there a minimum contribution, or that right, or or a, a, ma- or a maximum? You had to give at least twenty-five bucks or nothing. And it's not that way. You could give just a, even a dollar. You can give a dollar, right? Uh, and some people have made a campaign of just give a dollar so I can give get on the stage. Right? No, absolutely. And you know, I I think it's really healthy it's, to encourage participation by the grassroots. And I think what you're going to see when we have all the data after June the 12th, is that there has been unprecedented uh, increases in grassroots participation. And I think that's good for our democracy. Absolutely. And so, uh, and, the- that, and that was a goal of ours, Bill. That right. was uh, not just something we thought of out of thin air. I just think we have to, we've done, everything I've been doing as chair, our, our rules reforms, you know, uh, reducing the role of superdelegates, expanding primaries. We want more people to participate. We want people to feel that the Democratic Party is your party. It's the party of the grassroots. Uh, and a lot of the voter reforms, which I want to talk to you about, too, and we will. But So now, uh, we get down, down to June 12, and let's pick a number, right? There are 14, just to give an even number, candidates who've met, who've, who've, who've met the test. How do you decide who goes the first night and who goes the second night? Well, we will do a, a random assignment. Again, what does that I, I, mean? we have out three, of, not draw we, names out well, of Well, we haven't determined exactly how we're going to do it yet. But I mean, here, here again, we have three goals. We want to make sure we don't have a JV varsity right. matchup. I think that's important. Um, we we want to make sure that uh, we are maximizing uh, participation, and and we really uh, we, we want to have the spotlight be on the candidates and give them that opportunity uh, to make their case. And so those are 
those are goals that have animated everything we've done throughout. And it's, I think it's been, it's really been uh, remarkable. And, and, you know, candidates have had opportunities uh, to make their case. Every candidate who's <laughs> running uh, has uh, had a, or at least I think every candidate who's running has had a CNN mm-hmm. uh, town hall meeting. Um, and so they've had opportunities to get their name out there. These debates will provide that as well. Right. Um, candidates have had uh, town halls on CNN. A couple have had them even on Fox News. Uh, you have you um, left Fox off the list of those who who were eligible to um, or invited to host a DNC town hall. Do you think Democratic candidates running for president should do a town hall on Fox? I leave it to them, and I, I've been very clear that I I'm not going to uh, say hey that from the DNC's perspective you can't do that. Uh, I had a number of conversations with Fox in the run up to these debates. I seriously considered it. And in the end of the day, I concluded that these debates are too important. Uh, when you have uh, perhaps you know 10 candidates on the stage, one or two nights, uh, I think it's so important that I have 1,000% confidence that everything is going to be on the up and up. And, and Fox News, the, the highest levels of Fox News, their interference in the news division, uh, frankly, undermined my confidence in uh, ensuring that uh, I could guarantee to our candidates that they were going to get a fair shake. Now, again, I, I appear on Fox News. I will continue to appear on Fox News. I, I, yeah. I've uh, been on Chris Wallace. I've been on Brett Baer. I don't go on Hannity. Oh, that's not news. That's uh, pablum, right. <laughs> you know, uh, propaganda, propaganda, whatever. whatever you want to call it. But I, I uh, and I respect the choices that all the candidates have made. And, and I, I leave it up to them. And I will continue um, to appear on, on Fox News as a representative of the DNC. But these debates, I think, are going to be unprecedented in their importance, given the stakes here. And I just didn't feel comfortable uh, taking a chance. I mean, it, when you see Trump and he refers to Fox News and he's talking about we, it, it's I mean, he yeah, he please. clearly has a seat on the on the board, whether it's uh, uh, he has a de facto you, seat on the board. <laughs> <laughs> it's his network. You also have to think that maybe maybe one of the best reasons uh, for that Demo- for Democrats to go on Fox is because obviously it makes Donald Trump very it angry. It sure gets under sees, his skin <laughs> when he sees a Democrat on Fox. He thinks they. Uh, so um, you know. He, there's so much excitement around the presidential. We've been talking about it now for the last 20 minutes. Um, do we run the risk again of focusing on the presidential and ignoring those important governor's races and the state legislative races, right, that are the bench and the, uh, well, the Democratic the, Party? Well, it's a really good question. And the thing that I am as proud of as anything in our tenure at the DNC <laughs> is that we have become a 50-state party again. Uh, 57, if you include our territories territories and our Democrats abroad who uh, play a really important role. Right. And we have become a party whose mission is once again to elect Democrats up and down the ballot from the school board to the Oval Office. We helped flip eight state legislative chambers from red to blue in the 2017-2018 cycle. The moment that Washington State Senate became in Democratic hands in 2017, a woman named Manka Dingra a one in uh, the 45th Senate district of the state of Washington. 
Now they had total control. What did they do? They passed early voting, a series of reforms to make it easier for eligible people to vote, things that had been stymied by the Republicans. Uh, the last time, uh, now, now in the coming cycle, Bill, uh, if we flip 32 state legislative seats in 10 chambers, we flip those chambers and we will almost have uh, half of the state legislative chambers in whoa, short order. And, and it starts 32 seats, not 32 30. seats total in, in 10 legislative chambers. And let me give you a very concrete example of 2019 in the state in the Commonwealth of Virginia. If we win two seats in the state house and one in the state Senate that I mentioned, 32 yeah. Three of those 32 are right here in Virginia. We do that. We have uh, the trifecta. We have the state Senate. We have the state House, and we control the governorship there. And why is this so important? It's important because redistricting is coming up. And, and those governor seats we won in 2018, and the last time we won this many seats, flipped this many seats from uh, red to blue in the governorships, uh, was 1982. And so our focus at the DNC starting in 2017 was getting back to our roots. In 2019, we have three governor's races in um, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Kentucky. We just had a primary in Kentucky the other day. Andy Bashir yeah, won. Right, right. And, uh, uh, John Yarmouth was in a little bit earlier yeah. telling us about that, that he we thinks Andy, that Andy Bashir has a really good shot. He has an yeah. absolute shot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Matt Bevin's <laughs> approval ratings are something like 25 to 30 percent, very low because he's offended everybody. Uh, school teachers. I mean, his his governance has been horrific. And so uh, we're working hard there. Uh, there's a guy named Jim Hood running for governor in tennis in um, Mississippi. Uh, Jim is the attorney general there. If you look at the last statewide election four years ago in Mississippi, the statewide candidate who got the most votes was attorney general Jim Hood. So I mean, we have a shot, mm-hmm. and uh, we're organizing there, and we're gonna. We're our mission is to elect Democrats up and down the ticket, and it's a virtuous cycle because the relationships that we built in 2017 and 2018 and are continuing to build now, they're not only going to help our nominee for president. Absolutely, they're helping our right. candidates up and down the ballot. Now, I uh, I often quote your slogan: uh, "Every zip code counts," or "Every zip Amen. code is important." That's our yeah. the, our yeah. partnership agreement with our state parties. It's called every zip code counts. I think it was yesterday, maybe a day before, uh, in um, either the New York Times or the Washington Post, I saw a picture of Donald Trump shaking hands with Steve Wynn. Uh, and it turns out that this disgraced casino mogul is still one of the major contributors to the Republican Party and still buddy-buddy with Donald Trump. Well, uh, the uh, chairwoman, McDaniel, said uh, after all the... Uh, facts came out about Wynn's misconduct, and I quote, the RNC would absolutely return 100% of uh, the donations uh, if the investigations found wrongdoing, and the investigations found wrongdoing. And now, you know, he met him on the tarmac in one of his events right. recently. Yeah. He's, yeah, that's the photo um, I saw, right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's back in. I mean, there, there's no moral scruples in this party, and we've known that for some time, and so this comes as no surprise to me. And 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 one of but the they reasons, haven't, or have they returned the money? Do we know? No, no, yeah. they're taking more money. He just made another contribution, <laughs> uh, as I understand. And the, the thing about it, uh, the, one of the reasons we are winning, and one of the reasons we won, I believe, in 2018, is because people are fed up with this president. Um, look at how well we did among women in 2018. They are fed up with this president. Yeah. 
and uh, the 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 I think it was a nineteen. Per, the last number I saw was a nineteen percent gap yep. between re, re, women voting for a Democrat <coughs> and win, women yep. voting for a Republican candidate. Uh, and now you've got Donald Trump and the party who are um, uh, going on this um, anti-abortion bandwagon, starting with Alabama, but then all, all these other states, <coughs> right? Um, and and women, excuse me, I have a little yeah. bit of a cold. You look at 2018, and the road to the U.S. House was so many ways, but women, suburban women, totally, yeah, um, African American women. Uh, that's how we won in 2018. That was a big way that we won. You, the the way that we have to win the presidency, and it's pretty clear that you have to have a mobilized and excited base, mm-hmm. and you have to win moderate voters. You have to do both, and we did that in 2018. We did that because we had message discipline. We were talking about health care. We were talking about how we have your back on the issues that matter most to you, and they have a knife in your back. Right. And uh, we will, and, and what happened in Alabama, and by the way, Bill, Alabama has one of the worst rates of infant mortality in the United States, one of the highest rates yeah. of um, cervical cancer. These are so preventable. This notion that they care, well, if you care, why don't you do something about infant mortality? Right. Uh, Tom Perez, it's great to see you, and uh, sorry about your throat there. Thank you so much for your support over the years here for the Bill Press Show, oh, and uh, we'll continue to stay in touch with you as we move into the uh, into the podcast version of the show. Great. Uh, and uh, good luck getting on top of this 2020 <laughs> debate and race, and stay there, and thanks for the great job you're doing. Thank you. This is the Bill Press Show.